I'd like to invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We will be in Mark chapter 10 today, beginning at verse 13. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 13. And as you are finding that location, I'd invite you to bow your heads with me in prayer. Lord, thank you for bringing us into your presence through these gifts of worship and prayer, uh, telling stories and hearing about uh, the work that you are doing around the world. Lord, thank you that we can be numbered among your children and that we can call each other brother and sister. Lord, I pray that as we uh, come to your word now, that you would help us to be um, contrite and open to receive from you uh, whatever it is that you want to say. However it is you want to speak a word of renewal or creation in us, Lord, um, help us to receive that well today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 13. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch them and bless them. But the disciples told them not to bother him. But when Jesus saw what was happening, he was very displeased with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, anyone who doesn't have their kind of faith will never get into the kingdom of God. Then he took the children into his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. This morning, uh, we've already heard from uh, Steve and Karen and uh, had the opportunity to celebrate the work and the ministry and the mission of One Door in just a few moments. We're going to have the opportunity to hear from Susan Marsh about the uh, work, the ministry, the mission of Young Lives. And as I was thinking about both of those sitting with us together today, uh, this is a story that started to stir in my thinking and um, began to wonder what could a story like this teach us about what it means for us to be involved in ministry, in mission, in the work that God is inviting us to do. And so I have two things. Uh, the first one is, uh, from this text, uh, we can see how we, how we do mission. And the second thing is, we can see how mission does us. How we do mission, number one. And then number two, how, how mission does us. Only two. After last week, I found my edit button again, so that's working properly. So just two points today, and you will be home before dinner. So... First of all, uh, how, what do we learn from this text about how we do mission? Now, that may be a little bit of an unfair way to put that. Uh, it, it, this may be how we do mission. In other words, this text serves as a mirror, and in that mirror, maybe we see something about how we, how I, how you do mission. and. I certainly see myself in this story, and I'm just going to invite you to wonder if you see yourself in this story at all. Uh, Mark, by the time he gets to this episode in the life of Jesus, is over halfway through his gospel. He is almost all the way through the public life and public ministry of Jesus on earth by this point. There are only a few key things that will still happen uh, before Jesus ultimately goes to the cross. Jesus' public ministry is drawing to a close, and what that means, by the time we get to this story, uh, two things are true. One is that Jesus 
is immensely popular. Jesus has a massive reputation at this point. And already in the story of Mark in this gospel, we have seen that Jesus, uh, there's something powerful about the touch of Jesus. Uh, in the story, we have seen Jesus uh, heal the deaf and the blind with just a touch. We've seen Jesus uh, cleanse lepers with just a touch. Uh, already in the story of Mark, by this point, we've seen that, Je that Jesus can defeat a demon uh, with just a touch of his hand. He's raised the dead with nothing more than a touch. And so it's no wonder that these parents want Jesus to touch their children. There's no evidence that any of these children are sick or that there's anything wrong, but Jesus' reputation is so immense and so powerful that everybody knows that there's something very special that happens at the touch of Jesus. When you think about this episode, uh, even though it uses the language of blessing at the end, the beginning uh, just simply uses the word parents were bringing their children to Jesus so that he could touch them. Uh, they wanted their children to be touched. How many of you ever been to John Ball Park Zoo in Grand Rapids? Anybody ever been there? All right, so you, you, you've, uh, you've, you, you know the zoo. And if you are approaching the front entrance to John Ball Park Zoo, you know that there's a statue that sits there, right? And that's a statue of Mr. John Ball, right? And it is a huge uh, statue. At least when you're eight years old, it looks like it's massive. And uh, there are some things that when you go to the John Ball Park Zoo, you have to do. You have to have a little bag of uh, breadcrumbs that you can throw to the ducks and to the birds, right? Uh, you have to make sure you see the tiger. And no trip to John Ball Park Zoo is complete when you're eight years old unless you climb on the statue of Mr. John Ball. And it's a slippery, sort of treacherous climb. And if you're a timid child, uh, you climb up and sit on his lap. And if you're a little bit more adventurous, you maybe climb up into his arms. And the most daring of all uh, activities was to climb all the way up and sit on the shoulders of John Ball. Sit right up on, and you would sort of straddle his neck and hold on to his head and look behind you and hope that you didn't go sliding off the slick surface of the statue. But that's the, that's the, the sort of the, the picture that I have in my mind when I think of all of these children coming to Jesus. The parents are coming and they're saying, let our kids get close to you. Let our kids climb up on you. Let our kids tug on your robe and grab a hold of your beard and sit in your lap, climb up into their arms, and yes, maybe even sit on your shoulders a little bit. This is a, this is a moment where the parents are just saying, all we want is for our kids to get close to you. We want you to touch our children because we know something happens in the presence of Jesus. We know that in the touch of Jesus, there's something that is healing and something that is life-giving and something that is just good. And I, and I want to pause there and ask you to emphasize that in your memory, ask you to hold on to that image. This idea that being in the presence of Jesus is enough. That the touch of Jesus is sufficient. By the time we get to the end of the sermon today, some of us will be sitting there saying, yes, but what do I do? But what do I do? But what do I do? And that's when I want you to go back to this memory file and pull up that picture and remind yourself and remind me the presence of Jesus is the whole point. The touch of Jesus is sufficient.
The parents want their children to be blessed. The second thing that it means for Jesus to be almost done with his earthly ministry by this point in Mark is that Jesus is moving rapidly towards Jerusalem. By the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem, uh, he will uh, enter into the period that we call his passion. He will uh, be betrayed, he will be abandoned, he will suffer, he will die, he will be buried, and ultimately he will be raised again from the dead. Jesus knows all of this is coming. Jesus knows that his purpose is not just for the children that are there around him in that moment, but that Jesus also has your children in mind because your children can be touched by Jesus. Jesus has you in mind. Jesus has me in mind. Jesus has a larger mission in mind as he's sitting there with those kids. He knows he's moving to Jerusalem, and he has some urgency about that. And he's no doubt communicated to his disciples that sense of urgency. No doubt uh, he's communicated to them that uh, his primary purpose, the primary way that he will fulfill his father's mission is by going to Jerusalem. They know that. They're on board with that. And so the disciples will combine that sort of rightful sense of urgency with the societal norms of the day that say children are at the very most second-class citizens. They should be seen sometimes and never heard. They combine all of that, and they quickly decide that their job is to shoo the children away. Now, the word that um, Mark uses there to describe the activity of shooing those children away is a fairly harsh word. It's a fairly intense word. Uh, it it uh, uh, sometimes is translated as rebuked. Uh, they rebuked the parents of these children. The term conveys a sense of denouncing. Uh, in other places in the gospel, uh, this is the word that gets applied to what Jesus does to demons. Uh, the Denouncing or expressing strong disapproval. And it can even have a tinge of violence in it. Uh, in other words, there's some heat behind what the disciples are doing. There's some strong motivation that's going on here. Uh, there's some threat that they're carrying in their action. The disciples are rebuking these parents for, as if they're doing something wrong. And there's the mirror. I want to suggest that there's something that the disciples are doing, something in the disciples' actions that help me to reflect on how I do mission, how I do ministry, how I do relationships. Essentially, the disciples are stepping into the situation, and what they want to do is fix it, correct it, or control it. They want to fix, correct, or control a situation that they just simply feel is wrong. From the disciples' vantage point, and they, and they may be completely warranted in that conclusion. Uh, the disciples' vantage point is that these children uh, should know how to be better behaved. They should know how not to climb up on Jesus and pull on his robes and get into his beard. They should know that, these children. Who's, whose parents are, and speaking of parents, these parents, even if the children don't know better, the parents should certainly know better than to allow their children to be so unruly and disruptive and interruptive. And then even if the children don't know it, and even if the parents don't know it, then Jesus should know it. And there's even this sense in the story that the disciples are correcting Jesus. It's as if they're saying, Jesus, you've got us all whipped up about the urgency to get to Jerusalem. 
And now you seem to be contradicting your own priorities here. And they're correcting Jesus' activities as well. Everybody in the story should know better. And from the disciples' perspective, they do know better. They know how it should be done. They know how this should go. They know what this should look like. They know what the boundaries are. And so they try to correct the situation by rebuking the parents. Now, this might be a strong statement, but over the course of two decades plus uh, worth of ministry, observing myself, observing others around me, here's a rule of thumb that I think is accurate. I think this is an accurate rule of thumb. Here it is. When you live on mission with Jesus, and that's our call as a church, right? Uh, this morning you'll have an opportunity to sign up for Fifth Sunday teams. You'll have an opportunity and invitation to be a part of Young Lives. Uh, we certainly uh, have opportunities and invitations to be a part of One Door. We have an invitation and a calling to be engaged on mission. And when we live on mission with Jesus, your impulse, my impulse, our impulse, to fix, to control, or to correct the flaws that we see in others will automatically get triggered. When we're on mission, the impulse to fix will automatically get triggered. When you become a mentor, you're going to find aspects in your mentee's life that you look at and you just say, this is so obvious. If you would just simply make this one simple adjustment, if you just do this one little step, you would find a solution to a problem that is making your life so miserable. It, it, would, it would be uh, such an easy thing for you to get rid of all that unpleasantness. I was in, it, it, it's fairly ironic, this is kind of a rabbit trail, it's, it's fairly ironic, I was busy writing about uh, when you're on mission with Jesus, the impulse to fix will get triggered automatically. And uh, a young man that I'm involved with mentoring uh, was getting resistant to an invitation that I had offered to him. And everything in me was saying, well, I want to convince you why this is such a good idea. It's just an automatic thing. It's so clear. It's so obvious. It makes so much sense to me that this is what you should do. And everything in me wants to convince you that that's true. Maybe when you work in our children's ministry, uh, you're going to be working with kids, especially kids when we uh, come on Wednesday evening, that have very different behavioral standards than what you are used to in a church setting. And everything in you wants to fix the behavior of those kids. Maybe when you go on a short-term mission trip, uh, you're involved in a building project. Uh, maybe you're involved in a flood recovery activity. You go on a mission trip and you get to a place and you have a technique for building, you have a technique for intervening that you know is superior, that you know would work better, and everything in you wants to do it that way and to teach everybody around you how to do it, even though that isn't the way that it's done locally. And when your way isn't uh, adopted, there's some resentment that you carry. Someone in your Oasis group shares a story about their life. Someone in your Oasis group opens up and shares about a problem or a challenge that they're facing. And as they tell the story, you've been there. You've lived that story. You know what the answer is. You know how to fix it. And the solution is clear to you. And even if you don't say it out loud, there's a part of you that gets frustrated inside because they can't see what you can see so easily. Maybe you're serving as a deacon, or maybe you're serving as a part of our benevolence team, and you meet with somebody who has financial challenges and a budget that just doesn't quite match up. 
And as you sit down and converse and talk with that individual, it's very clear to you the budget adjustments that they could easily make that would solve their budget crisis. And you want to fix it and tell them how to do it and control it and make it okay. The impulse to fix, to correct, to solve, to control is automatically triggered when we get on mission with Jesus. And here's Jesus' response to his disciples. When that impulse is triggered, don't. Don't give in to it. Don't do that. Don't try to fix this. Why? This is what Jesus says. He says, in your rush to be helpful, in your rush to fix it, in your rush to put things back on track, to get things right, in their rush to solve the problem that they see, in their uh, effort to alleviate the discomfort that either they experience or that they are imagining Jesus is experiencing, whatever their motivation, no matter how good their motivation, in their effort to fix it, Jesus says, they're preventing the children from coming to him. All they're doing in the end is preventing the children from coming to Jesus. That's a that's a challenging comment. What if my best, most well-intended effort to fix somebody else is actually the thing that is preventing that person from coming to see Jesus? What if fixing and solving and correcting and controlling is really the kiss of death to the mission that matters most. When we do a faith walking retreat, a one-on-one retreat over a weekend, we have one coming up in November, we always uh, have a part of the retreat that is given to small group conversations. And at every single retreat that I've ever been a part of, people will evaluate the effectiveness of their small group experience on one single criteria. Did I feel safe or not? Was this a place that I could share and listen and process? Did I feel safe or did I not feel safe in my small group? And the number one contributor to whether or not somebody feels unsafe is if they feel like they have become somebody's project if they feel like somebody else in the group is fixing them, solving them, controlling them, giving them advice, giving them um, all of the resources that they need so that their life can be better. People feel unsafe in relationships when they're a project. Jesus is saying here, people are to be valued over projects. Value relationships over regulations, value connecting over social norms. I look in the mirror of this story, and I see myself with a distressing regularity. All too often, this is how I do mission. But there's another aspect here. There's another possibility that Jesus is opening us up to, and that is that mission also does us. Being on mission with Jesus does something to us and in us. It changes us. And what Jesus does in this story, he completely flips the script. He's not only saying, stop fixing the situation. He's not only saying, embrace these children. But he goes one further surprising step, and he says, you have to actually become like these children. 
unless you become like these children, you yourself will not enter into the kingdom of God. And so suddenly Jesus makes these children the teachers. Here's what I think Jesus might say to us today. Now we have a really quiet morning today, so this illustration won't land. But in your imagination, imagine coming to a church and you're sitting, listening to a sermon or you're trying to pray and there are some kids that get loud. The impulse is to maybe scowl at them, to maybe chew that family up in your brain a little bit, maybe go home and complain about how loud and disruptive the children are. And what Jesus is saying to us is, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, consider the possibility that those children are preaching an indispensable sermon to you. I look at my own reactions to the disruptions of children, to any disruption. And I know how hard it is. I think about my reactions when I lose my place, when I lose my train of thought. I wonder if somebody else is missing something important that I was trying to say. And when I see that upset in me, then I get a little bit closer to seeing the gospel. When I can see my reaction to the children, I can get a little bit closer to the gospel. The only way to get close to Jesus, the children say, is to stop trying to come on your own terms. You have to surrender control. That's the lesson. That's the sermon from the children. Uh, this past summer, I uh, had a fascinating conversation and then uh, read the book by uh, Wesley Granberg Michelson, who was a former uh, um, leader of the Reformed Church in America. And uh, his book is called Ten Challenges Reshaping Christianity in the 21st Century. Ten Challenges Reshaping Christianity. Um, he cites the first challenge, and it is that Christianity is no longer a Western religion. Uh, Christianity is now primarily located in the global South and East. The life of the church, the growth of the church, the action of the church is in the global South and the East. Christianity is just simply not a Western religion any longer. And then connected to that, number two, is this idea that congregations within the United States are withering. They're withering away. Uh, he cites a whole slew of statistics to support that position. Uh, one thing that he says is that in the United States, about 20% of our population uh, is between the ages of 18 and 34. And only 10% of our churches represent that demographic. In other words, 90% of our congregations are significantly older than the population of the United States. Uh, he says between uh, the years 2007 and 2014, the percentage of people claiming no religious affiliation grew to almost 23%, and among the millennials, that number is 31%. It's a growing number of people who claim no religious affiliation. He says uh, the median weekend attendance at United States congregations, uh, um, the median being the point at which there are an equal number above it and an equal number below that uh, statistic, that the median number fell uh, between uh, from 2010, where it was 105, to 2015, where that number is 80. In other words, um, 
half of the churches that are meeting this morning have 80 people or fewer uh, in worship today. And that number continues to decline. So we have Christianity is no longer a Western religion. Our congregations are withering. And the third thing he says then is that um, churches that are doing well, places where there are signs of health, are places where we are learning from our brothers and sisters in the global church. Places where we are learning from our brothers and sisters in the global church. Not far from here, this morning, down at the Midland Community Center, uh, there's a pastor uh, from Africa who was sent here to Midland as a missionary. The worldwide church is desperately sending missionaries to the United States to help us to reclaim and rediscover a de-Americanized version of the gospel. Global missions is no longer, if it ever was, no longer about sending out white, educated, rich, cultured missionaries to other countries to give them what they don't have. Instead, increasingly, world missions is about coming alongside each other and learning from each other. Um, I've always appreciated the way that Steve and Karen have held to that value. Uh, as Steve mentioned in his remarks, we had a team that uh, visited them while they were in Haiti. And it was really clear in Haiti that Steve had some very specific and important things to teach the pastors that he was working with, and they were learning it well. And what was also clear is that one of the reasons that Steve was so um, effective and welcomed to bring what he knew was because he was also busy learning what they knew. There's a genuine partnership. Uh, you saw Pastor Ago in the uh, slides. I had the opportunity to meet Ago and to work with Ago a little bit. And one of the fascinating things that I learned from Ago was uh, how to speak and how to think about an oral culture. And so much of my training and so much of my background uh, is a verbal world. And I think about words and I think about content. And Pastor Ago lives in an oral culture. And the implications for how to present the gospel and how to teach the scriptures in an oral culture are not only important and, and relevant in Haiti, but they are increasingly important and relevant here in the United States. Uh, mission is about coming alongside and learning from. And that shouldn't be surprising to us. When we're on mission, Jesus is always inviting us to learn from unlikely places. In this story, Jesus says, I know your culture dismisses them and looks down on them and doesn't pay any attention to them, but I want you to learn something from these children. I want you to learn something about your heart attitude, about giving up control and giving up position and giving up earning and just come as a child. Learn something about the kingdom of God from these children. There's unlikely teachers. Jesus says, I want you to learn something from women. In a, in a culture where women uh, didn't have a voice, weren't allowed to testify, didn't have standing in a legal sense in the community, Jesus has the women be the very first uh, preachers of the gospel that Jesus, that Jesus was raised from the dead. And typically, the men who heard the women said, we don't believe it, and uh, the gospels record that they said, it sounds like nonsense to us. 
Jesus says, I want you to learn something from a group of people that are speaking what sounds like nonsense. Learn something from them. They're preaching the gospel to you. Learn from the children. Learn from the women. Jesus wants us to learn from Gentiles. He, there's a story in uh, the Gospels about a centurion who comes to find Jesus and says, my servant is sick. My servant is uh, sick unto death. Will you come and will you heal my servant? And you all remember the story, right? Jesus says, yes, I'll come. And what does the centurion say? He says, you don't even have to come. I know. All you have to do is give the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus, the text says, Jesus himself is astonished. And he says, I haven't even seen faith like this in Israel. Learn something, Jesus says, from these unlikely teachers. Learn something from the children. Learn something from the women. Learn something from the Gentiles. The New Testament even invites us to learn something from our enemies. In Ephesians 3, uh, Paul writes, Though I am less than the least of all of the saints. And when, whenever Paul describes himself that way, he isn't just having a poor self-image. He's not just being humble. He really believes that because of his violent persecution and effort to stamp out the early fledgling Christian movement, that he is the least of all the saints. He was a violent enemy of the church. And this is what he says, this grace was given to me to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. In the gospel, we learn from children and women and Gentiles, and enemies. In our world, we learn from countries that used to send, that we used to send missionaries to and are now sending missionaries to us. We walk in partnership and we learn alongside of them. All ways that we learn what faith is, all windows into the kingdom of God. And then in the very next story in this chapter, there's a story of a rich man. We know he's a uh, Hebrew person, a Jewish man. He's wealthy, he's very successful, and he comes to Jesus and he wants to know how he can have eternal life. And Jesus tells him what he has to do. And the man can't do it, he can't give up control, he can't give up his possessions, and he goes away empty. Between these two stories, the wealthy, successful Jewish man is the last person the readers of Mark would say, I need to fix that person. I need to control that person. I'm superior to that person. They would never think about that. The children, the unruly parents, getting in the way, interrupting, outside of the social norms, absolutely fix, control, correct, rebuke. And Jesus says, the one you learn nothing about the kingdom, and the other one you see the kingdom fully on display. At its best, this is what mission does to me. This is how mission does me. It puts me in connection with unlikely people in surprising situations where my faith and my joy will actually grow right alongside the ones that I'm walking with. A mentor who learns from a mentee. A coach who learns from an athlete. A boss who learns from a new hire. A therapist who learns from her client. A teacher who learns from her student. A Christian who learns from an atheist. When we stop fixing, when we stop our projects, when we stop controlling, when we stop solving, 
we find that the unlikely people and the surprising situations have cleared for us a path where we can climb up on the lap of Jesus, where we can experience the presence of Jesus, and yes, maybe even get up onto his shoulders ourselves, where we can find in the lessons we learn about the kingdom, healing and life and laughter in the unexpected presence of Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for loving us enough to surprise us. Thank you for being a powerful, life-giving, healing, blessing God. Lord, for all of the ways that we try to fix people around us, correct them, make them what we need them to be, Lord, help us to turn away from that and to repent from that. Help us instead to learn from each other. Help us to be open to seeing the gospel, to seeing something new that is revealed in us. Something that you're speaking, some way that you're at work. So that we too can find the fullness of your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.